Hello, hello. Welcome to Deep Dive Into Practice, where we support your lifelong journey in mastering your skill set and becoming a highly effective mental health professional, whether you're working with children, teens, or families. By joining me, you're empowering yourself, flourishing your practice, and ultimately improving your client success. Hello, hello, and thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited. Today I'm going to be presenting Parents' Experiences of the Assessment Process, Dr. Jeremy Sharp, on his podcast, The Testing Psychologist. So this is first seen there, and I definitely wanted to show it here as well because I'm very proud of this work. It's been something that I've been doing for a very long time and wanted to make sure I share it with you. So enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Testing Psychologist podcast, the podcast where we talk all about the business and practice of psychological and neuropsychological assessment. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Sharp, licensed psychologist, group practice owner, and private practice coach. The Brief 2 ADHD form uses Brief 2 scores to predict the likelihood of ADHD. It is available on PARI Connect, PAR's online assessment platform. Learn more at PARINC.com. Okay, y'all. Hey, welcome back. Today I've got part two of Parent Perspectives on the Assessment Process with Dr. Caroline Bozenko. Caroline uh, was here last week for part one. If you didn't listen to that episode, I highly encourage you to go check that out before you listen to this one. I do think that they can stand independently, but uh, listening to the first episode last week will give you a lot more context and I think will be a nice um, uh, setup for the conversation that we have today. So you'll notice uh, we jump right into it from the get-go. Um, like I mentioned last week with these multi-part episodes, it's sometimes tough to separate the audio because we're just on a roll, but we did our best and I think it turned out okay, but just be ready for that right after the music. We're going to jump right into it, talking about ways to empower parents and adapt our assessment process to, to really cater to them. So if you are a testing practice owner or hope to be testing practice owner, I have three mastermind groups that might be a good fit for you. There's a beginner, an intermediate, and an advanced um, each of those cohorts is on a rolling admission until we reach our um, cap on members, which is six per group, and then we just get started. So uh, I think at this point I have one or two spots left in both the intermediate and beginner cohorts. So if you are just launching your practice or wanting to launch your practice, or you're a solar practitioner who doesn't really have any plans to expand, but you would like to dial in your systems and be more efficient, and feel less overwhelmed, these could be a good fit for you. So you can go to thetestingpsychologist.com slash consulting and set up a pre-group call to figure out if it's a good fit. I would love to have you in one of those groups. They've been pretty transformative for other members in the past. All right, without further ado, I would like to jump to part two of my conversation with Dr. Caroline Busanko. Uh, 
Um, so there's a lot of things that parents complain about, but they've given us a lot of insight how to make things better for them as well. So right from the beginning, before you even get started, parents must, must, must understand that assessment process. So that's going to help reduce their anxiety. They're still going to feel anxious. They're going to still feel stressed, but we can reduce some of that. So what it is that they are going to expect, having that conversation from the beginning, what they expect, and then educating them if there's things that, oh, actually we don't do that. And actually this is how long it's going to take or, or whatever else it is. This is what's being measured. This is what your kiddo is going to be doing. This is how that task is going to directly inform any decisions that are made. So pulling all of that together and so that they're feeling, and it still might be, you know, it still might not totally makes sense to them the way it does for us, but at least they're feeling like, wow, I'm a part of this process and you're obviously knowledgeable and you're bringing me along with this. That alone can really help set up some positive experiences for parents because that's what we definitely want to be focusing on. They also want to know how to best set up their kid. So bringing snacks, doing a morning session. If you've got a younger kiddo with attention difficulties, for example, breaking it into more than one session, what, how will your child function at their best? Cause that's what we want. We want to be, you know, be able to see them at their best. So having those conversations with parents right from the start can be really helpful. Um, I always have a handout for an overview for what to expect from the assessment, even just things around parking. This is where you can go. You got to register your car, you know, little things like that, because they're already stressing. Got to find your office. And now I can't find parking. And now I got to register all of those little things. What can we do to just to smooth the process a little bit? Uh, so I do have a little handout just explaining. This is how you can explain the process to your kiddo. These are the kinds of things that he'll be doing you know, anything like that, helping them prepare for the intake meeting. That's really important. So I do tell them, Hey, I'm going to go right back to your pregnancy and delivery. So think of those stories, right? Um, that that way, when we're preparing them about what we're going to be asking, they can give us so much more information, way more details. And that's going to be important if we're looking at a proper diagnosis. And depending on the type of assessment we're doing, I mean, I often, for sure, autism, I'm always getting them to find pictures of their kiddo in those pre preschool ages and watch videos of your kiddo. That's going to help you jog your memory, right? Look through the report cards. I want to see report cards anyway, but look through those report cards. I want you to start thinking about when you were first concerned about your kiddos learning or whatever it is. So I'm getting them to think about those. I also have them collect data for me right from the beginning. So I give them a data sheet, uh, especially if there's anxiety or behavioral disorders that we're looking at. I want them to start taking concrete data, even just an ABC sort of sheet, you know, so that they can come in and be like, okay, this is what happened. This is how I responded. This is what I think the function of the behavior is or whatever else it is, mm -hmm. because that's going to give us, even if it's just doing reading. Okay. We sat down, we're going to read the assigned ebook or whatever it was. Um, and this is what he said, or, you know, he started getting a stomach ache and this was the time of day and all the circumstances that's going to give us a lot of information and parents won't be scrambling for different ideas. So that can be really helpful as well. Getting them to bring a list of questions. I know we always say, do you have any questions But in the spot? They'll never think of it. But as soon as they leave our office, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, I've got 50 million questions. So getting them to start thinking of some of those questions from the start is really good. 
Um, one thing I know we all already do is getting them to figure out their goals for the assessment, what they want to learn. So they're helping us formulate those assessment questions, but I go beyond just asking what questions they want answered to also know how will you know that this assessment process or this assessment was helpful for you? What will be different when this assessment is done in your life? Because then we're going beyond just the referral question and and we can start outlining some of the recommendations that are going to be helpful. You know, I'll know that this was helpful because we can get out the door happy together in the morning. I'll know that this is helpful, that I can read for 20 minutes with my kiddo at night without a fight. So I really get at some of those kinds of things. It's kind of their dream, right? What will be different for them at the end Mm -hmm. of the process? Sure. Yeah. I like that question. Can I ask a really practical question? Sure. How are you preparing them with this information? Are you sending an email before their intake? Are you talking to them on the phone while you're scheduling them? How does this happen? Most of the time I try to do a call, like just a 10 minute call to orient them. Mm. Um, Yeah. Just to, to help Kate, we've got this upcoming assessment. Oftentimes, you know, if they call in and, and they just want that consultation, but I do try and I will admit it doesn't always happen. There's times where I show up and I'm like, oh man, somebody just at the last minute got scheduled today. And it's just kind of a panic scramble for everybody. Mm-hmm. But then, but then I'll take them in at the beginning and I'll sit them down. So I don't just take the kiddo into the room. I'll sit down with parents and say, okay, kiddo, what do you know about this process? What did mom and dad tell you? They almost always say, I don't know, nothing. Like I thought I was going to a doctor. <laughs> you're not going to give needles, right? Like they really have no idea. So then I I, I kind of talk with the parents right at the beginning there. um, If I don't have that chance to have that sort of clarity call before they come into the assessment. Um, But we do have a intake package that goes through and outlines everything. So we do have that via email, um, but then just that additional call um, before the assessment. Sure. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. I'm thinking about uh, from a business perspective, is that a video that you could record and attach to an email somehow? So that you're not doing the same call over and over and over. Good idea. I digress, but thank you for answering that. Yeah. I just, yeah, I think that's a great idea or even just, uh, yeah, I wonder if you could edit it, but still personalize it. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to think about that myself. Uh, and we've already talked about asking parents for their thoughts on the assessment process too, right? Um, what do you already know about the process? What are your expectations? How do you think this is all going to play out? That's really important. Um, and then, of course, you know, what is it that you're wondering about? And that's their hypothesis. So if they're like, why can't Johnny follow instructions? Is it because he's defiant? Like, what's going on? I always get their hypothesis right from the beginning, because then I can see what they're thinking. Oh, I think he's lazy. Oh, I think he's got ODD. Oh, I think he's got whatever. So we're already thinking about how parents are perceiving their kiddos difficulties. Um, And 
not only we're getting information from that perspective, because that's going to be really helpful for us when we get to the feedback session too, where they're at. So if it's congruent with what they're talking about, it's going to be a way easier feedback than if it's something completely different. If they're just sure that their kid's defined or lazy, and we're trying to say, no, 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 there, there really is going to have to be a big parenting shift here. I mean, that's going to be helpful for how we frame our our. Uh, a feedback meeting, or if parents are really stressed, I don't want to hear ADHD. It's not ADHD. Please stop telling me it's ADHD. And then we're like, oh my gosh, it's ADHD. That's going to give us a lot of information on how we're going to frame that feedback meeting, but we're collaborating too, right? When we're saying, well, what do you think? You're the expert here. You've known Johnny for 10 years, right? What, what are your thoughts? If you had to say what was going on, So then we're individualizing this process and we're really empowering parents because up until now, they might not feel empowered. Everybody else is telling them what's going on, what's wrong. And maybe they've seen it as well, but just no idea what to do. But we're we're starting to make that shift. No, you really do know your kiddo here and we want to use your expertise. So that's going to be really important. Also looking at the entire family. I do look at the parents' well-being. I look at their skill set. I look at their confidence in their skills, what resources that they have, you know, how have they managed, especially if there's behavioral difficulties, for example, how have you managed? What strategies have you used for, and that's applicable even for reading or writing difficulties. All of that's really important to consider when we make our recommendations. So if I have a parent who's really struggling and, you know, I'm sure you've had the parents who've got every medical condition under the sun and they're just not coping well, and they've been on stress leave for the past 18 months, I'm not going to give them as many recommendations. I am only going to give them one or two. So kind of getting that understanding of what's going on in the family context can help us frame those recommendations at the end. What's going to be more valuable. And maybe it's a, these are now recommendations. These are in when you're ready, when things settle down, when your health's back to bed, um, back, you know, back to normal, then maybe we can look at that. Because if we're giving them, them things that they can't even follow through on, or they're not confident in doing, <clears throat> that's going to be really different. And, and, and maybe it's, this is going to be important, but instead of saying you have to do this, maybe it's educating them first. So our recommendations kind of shift a little bit, or maybe mm-hmm. I'm searching out more YouTube videos or some sort of resource to supplement what it is that they can do. Now, are you formally assessing parental stress level or confidence or personality, or are these more qualitative questions you might be asking or talking about in the intake? It really is more qualitative. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not formally uh, assessing them. Um, Oftentimes, so they're like, wow. I think I've got difficulties too. Let's do an assessment, right? So that's a whole right. different story, but it really is the qualitative. And the reason why, so yeah, I am looking at the best as we can within, you know, a semi-structured sort of interview, but, or unstructured interview, even when it comes to all of these kinds of things, but we are showing parents, we care. We are showing parents, we are looking at the big context because remember one of their complaints is you don't understand my kid. You don't understand my family in the context of this child. And so we're just broadening that snapshot. And and I think that that's really important. Um, So it's just about, it's more about bringing them along and them feeling empowered and heard and understood and supported at the end of the day. 
I like that. Yeah. Um, I look at the siblings as well. That's a huge piece of the puzzle as well, because they've mm-hmm. got their own needs and they're a huge, you know, dynamic within the family. So I also ask about how they're doing. And so that, that gives us a lot to you. Oh my gosh, I've got two other kids with severe ADHD or whatever else. So that's going to give us a lot of information on what can this family actually do when it comes to some of our recommendations. So that's the intake piece where we're really laying that groundwork. We're really, um, being supportive. We're really giving parents that opportunity to tell their story because oftentimes they don't. And and it's that genuine sort of connection, which is important just from the beginning. Once we get into the actual testing sessions, I do have a quick meeting before the assessment. So we're going to prepare the kiddos, even if I already had that consultation call with parents, but you know, getting kids prepared. They're often really anxious as well, addressing any parent questions that have have come up. And of course, asking how they slept. Did they eat breakfast? You know, um, how eager were they coming? You know, how did you feel about coming? I always lighten the air, like almost every kid is just looking so apprehensive. And I'm like, yay, you're so excited to see me this morning. Like right away (laughs) there. And even my teenagers who've got their baseball cap down over their eyes and their arms, you know, crossed across across their chest and slumped down in their chair. I'm like, oh, wow, you're so excited. It just lightens the air a little bit, but really checking in. Um, I also ask, what are you missing that's important today? Because- Hmm, Great question. Yeah, because most of the time, most of the time they say nothing, but um, right right before the end of the school year last year, I had a little girl, she was bawling. It was her first day of test. And I'm like, and I had asked that and she, I could tell she was bawling. She calmed down. And then I asked her that question. She started bawling again. And I'm like, what's going on? And her mom's like, we didn't realize they're having their last day of school party. Oh, and I'm like, you are leaving right now. And you're going back to school. And the little girl was like, what? And the mom was like, what? Like I've waited months to see you. I'm like, I don't care because (laughs) if she is missing her last day and like, you know, with everything going on with COVID, they'd already missed so much school anyway. And you're not going to see your friends. She's going to be, these are not going to be valid results. So you're going to go back to school. You are going to have your party and we'll figure it out. Um, And again, this is maybe my bleeding heart that I did open up a weekend that we could get it done. But I mean, for me, I knew that the results just wouldn't be valid. For sure. For sure. I mean, uh, applause for the flexibility and being willing to meet the family where they're at. I mean, talk about sort of personal service. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, they were, were also moving. And so we really only had one week to get it all done. So <laughs> sure. I don't always necessarily do that, but we got to watch out for our own selves as well. But, but really, yeah. you know, so I always ask, what are you missing? And it's so like, Oh, I'm missing Jim, you know, or, and, and, or whatever it is. I think that that's important for us to know. Um, on the second day of testing, I always do at least two days. Um, I will ask, what were they like after the first day? Were they exhausted? Were they frustrated? Mm-hmm. You know, were they really apprehensive to come back? I think that that's important information. So that's kind of the, the debrief at the beginning, or not a debrief, but we're taking them in, just kind of chatting with how things are. But then afterwards, I save time at the end of the session to debrief with the kids and the parents. And I actually tell them what happened in the assessment. So the feedback meeting for me is never 
a shock because I'm starting to think like I am seeing some of the attention difficulties. I say if kids are there, I say it in super friendly ways. Like, hey, remember when we were laughing? Cause you're like, what? What did you say? Totally like looking around the room and had no idea what I was talking <laughs> about. So I'll bring kids into that kind of conversation, but to also let parents know, yeah, I am looking at attention. Or, you know, um, I was talking to a kiddo the other day who really can't read at all. And I'm like, oh man, you know your sounds and you can map your letter sounds to the letters, no problem. But your memory, it's like when you're holding too much laundry, you know, and in your socks and your underwear kind of falling, <laughs> that's kind of what's happening. You know, those letters and you know, those sounds, dude, you've got a reading brain, but that memory can't hold it all. And so that's why when you try to sound out those words, you've got all the sounds, you just can't remember the sounds to figure out what that word is. <laughs> so I'm already talking about about what I'm seeing. And then, you know, and then I said, wow, you've got this amazing ability to figure out what that word was. Remember, like you were reading the dirt. Oh, fly. No, it's not dirt. It's a bird. And I'm like, remember how you figured out those words? And, And then mom's like, yeah, you know, his tutor said he's really good at using context to figure things out. So we're already debriefing and I'm already getting a little bit more information. Mom never would have thought about saying, oh, tutor said he can use context to help, help him decode the words. But, but through the, the, this sort of debrief, again, we're being collaborative with parents. We're getting more information that's only going to help our assessment, but it's really helping them along that process as well. And so we're already talking about, oh, that makes sense. That's why I see this, right? It's for whatever reason, they can start putting puzzle pieces together about what they're seeing in their kiddo situation in everyday life. Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Transparency. I always already talked about that. Like if I am thinking autism, even though you're bringing them in for anxiety, I'm going to start sharing that hypothesis. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever Mm -hmm. noticed this? You know? And maybe I might not use that word, but social difficulties, right? And conversations. And I might start asking those questions. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, somebody said he's autistic, but I was like, whatever, you know, just helping share those hypotheses can be really helpful right from the start. Right, right. So you're doing that during the intake. This is during my assessment or during the the kiddos. Yeah. So when they're coming back to pick up their kids, I usually leave 15 minutes where we can start debriefing things that I noticed um, right, right then and there. So then by the time we meet parents already know what I'm going to say, because, you know, this little debrief, they're already starting to think, oh man, she did notice some of that awkwardness pieces or whatever else is going on. So they're understanding that process. They already know what directions I'm going into. Now they can start looking out for things too. You know, I'll, I'll say, just pay attention. Like if, if, if Sally's trying to get your attention, just, yeah. just ignore her, just not say anything and see what she does, see how she repairs that. Right. So I'll start already giving them things to start looking for. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um. When we have parents do rating scales, giving them opportunity to talk about it. I do like, I mean, I love the ease of the online ones where we can just email them the links, but I do like the paper ones so that they can write all over it. Um, Mm. So we do, you know, if I do see, oh, you said this kiddo 
likes to harm animals. I'm going to talk about that. And I keep bringing that up because that's been one that has come up quite a bit in the research where parents will endorse those types of items, Uh but then be like, well, no, no, no. It's just because they loved, it's a cuteness, aggressive disorder. They're like Lenny. They were just hugging the cat too hard. Cuteness, aggressive disorder. That's great. Yeah. 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 So it's just that they're loving it too much. It's not that they're trying to torture it right in their, in the parents' heads, they're thinking of something completely different. So they might endorse items. So I go through, you know, any of the flags, any of those kind of critical items that I might be worried about and, Mm -hmm. and actually do a bit of a qualitative interview about that as well, because it's not about the scores. It's about the story about what's going on for kiddos. Right. that's really important as well. Uh, and at what point are you doing this? I know I'm asking a lot of practical questions, but I think people probably have those questions too. Like, is this kind of post-testing pre-feedback and is it a phone call? Is it a separate meeting? You know, how, how does this actually happen in real life? Yeah. Most of the time it's another phone call or, or video session in between mm-hmm. before I do the final feedback meeting. Mm-hmm. I actually do things a little bit differently. I actually see the kids first for the first testing testing session, and then I do an intake meeting. Oh, then, what's the rationale there? And then I do another uh, assessment. Uh, it's because I have way more questions once I know the kiddo. Mm. Um, I so many more questions. And I find that our biases can really start to set in where we already know what the referral question is. We're going to be looking at this kiddo a little bit differently. And I found it really valuable for me. I mean, it doesn't always happen, but that's how I generally like to set it up. We do inform consent, but I don't do any of the intake things. Uh, And so then I have way more questions and uh, I'm not persuaded by any thing that teachers have said or parents have said, I really don't look at any of the paperwork or anything. And then it's in that intake interview where I will now go through some of those rating scales. Hey, you, you said, you know, that you saw these vocal ticks, for example, let's talk about that a little bit more. So then I can really sort of go through obviously the background information and all of the, you know, the story pieces, but then things that they've already endorsed on the rating scales. If we run out of time, then it's usually a follow-up or they didn't get the rating scales. Then it's usually, hey, just want to chat, have a few more questions before our feedback meeting. Uh, That's usually how I do that. Gotcha. Can I ask another uh, maybe dumb question as a follow-up? What? (laughs) No dumb questions. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Thanks. So how how do you construct a test battery even just for a half a day before you have done an intake and presumably have information that might guide choice of test battery. Yeah. So the first day, I mean, most of the time it's some cognitive piece. I do cognitive tests. I can't think of anything. I wouldn't do cognitive. Mm-hmm. Is there mm-hmm. anything? I can't think of anything that I wouldn't do a cognitive for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um Sometimes I do have to, you know, all of a sudden I realize, oh man, this kiddo doesn't have any English. I mean, there's basic things that I do already, you know, because I already have conversations with um, preparing parents and, you know, I do have a bit of a referral question, for example, but um, sometimes I do change things on the fly once I start working with kiddos. So I think that there is a lot of that flexibility that I have. I just have them right there um, on my shelf. I'm like, okay, we are discontinuing the whip and we're pulling out the ravens or whatever it is that's going on or we're adding things. Um, But as you 
as you'll see, I do a lot of different types of testing when we get into more of the therapeutic type of uh, things. I'll talk a little bit about that, but um, generally it's the cognitive stuff. Sure. Sure. So those, those more common measures that you would likely administer during any evaluation. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the time they demand, you know, depending on agencies and things like that, they just want to see a whisk, for example, right. They Mm -hmm. don't, there's some places here that say, we do not take a Stanford Binet. We do not accept a WJ. We need an Mm -hmm. FSIQ score or whatever that is. So um, it's pretty standard here in terms of that. Everything else is very different. Um, but generally speaking, that's great. Uh, yeah. Cool. Makes it kind of easy in that. Um, then I also look at the whys mm-hmm. behind different things. So, you know, when we're doing, well, even just the gentleman that I was doing an autism assessment for, I actually had him do the rating skills right there with me. It's quite complex and he's endorsing things. And I see this even to my teen girls who are gifted in ADHD. And now they're wondering about autism, for example, because there is so much overlap. I, I start to ask the whys. So you're rigid. Let's look at why you might be rigid. Is it because you're governed by rule-bound behavior? Right. Or is it that, you know, you have to have your things in this exact order because you're totally going to forget where you put it. So there's, there might be a different function to the behavior. So I had one kiddo and this is really hit home when I was much younger, early in my practice where he had trouble with visual modulation. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Um, and we didn't know about it. So we're trying to bust up all these rigidities that this kiddo had. And one of his biggest rigidities was he had to have on his bookshelf, his books and games in the exact same order every single time. And he'd freak out if one wasn't in the right place. So we're busting things up. We're mixing up a shelf and we're practicing relaxation strategies and, you know, frustration tolerance and all this stuff, but we were causing him more distress. And, and, and we found out it wasn't a rigidity problem at all. It's he literally could not tell one book from another. And so he just learned if I want that game, it's the fifth in because he couldn't tell. So it's just looking at, I mean, he's the only kid since then that I've had these visual, you know, modulation difficulties. Um, but just looking at the function of why, if, if, you know, one of the things we ask parents, if you walk into a room and, you know, say the kiddo's name, will he look up at you? Will he acknowledge you? Well, just because he doesn't, doesn't mean it's autism. If it's a kid with ADHD playing video, well, any kid playing a video game, really at the end (laughs) of the day, but, but why is that? Right. So it's looking at the context. We can't just take the scores of rating scales at face value. So it's just doing a little bit more digging in and parents now know, oh, you didn't just base it on a rating scale. You're actually digging deeper. So we're, we're bringing parents along and they're having more faith in the work that we're doing. Hmm. Um, and, and I think it depends too at what we're looking at, but I do know that almost all my ADHD kids score high on the autism scales. Right. And so it's, it might look the same, but the reasons might be really different. Yeah. It is time consuming when we do this. And I know that that's probably what a lot of people are thinking, just all these extra calls and these extra questions and, But we get so much more information. And at the end of the day, if we've got happy parents, I mean, from a business perspective, we're going to get more referrals too, right? And so, you know, we can look at it that way. But but really, it's about we do this work because we want to help the families. And we are going to most help these kids that we work with or the individuals that we work with when 
the parents are feeling confident in the work that we did and, and that we did a comprehensive job. So um, oftentimes, you know, right then and there, I will try to do um, just do extended inquiries. Um, so that's why I like having them in the moment do rating scales with me just because right then and there, I can start asking them questions. Um, and I've already kind of talked a little bit about that, but I think that that's important, right? That we're doing this to get good information and parents are seeing that we're being comprehensive. We're not just focusing on, on test scores. We're really trying to understand their child. If there's an opportunity for parents to observe, that yeah. can be really helpful too. They can take this role of sort of co-assessor where they're providing observations. They can provide interpretations of what's going on. And especially in some of the more social, emotional types of assessments, I just did an ADOS the other day, actually not my favorite, but um, maybe I another that conversation. Out. No, just kidding. Yeah. A whole other conversation, <laughs> but I was doing an ADOS just because that's what the pediatrician wanted me to do. And, um, but it was interesting. And, and the dad at the end was like, wow, that was so incredible to see. And, and he's like, I didn't realize how deficited my kid was because he has his older kiddo, adolescent, um, functioning fantastically, but we see how much we compensate for him. And I left things hanging. I left things so awkward. Like the mm. dad was shifting in his seat. It was so awkward. And I had debriefed him at the beginning. Do not say anything. I'm going to look like I'm mean. I'm going to ignore him. I'm going to be doing these things, but it was so awkward. And so, you know, th then it can be really helpful, but that opportunity for parents to say, see what's going on can give us a lot of information and it helps them understand the child. Um, I used to have, you know, when I did more early intervention stuff and did just, um, assessments for funding for, for kiddos with autism, I'd have aides sit in the room, especially if there were huge behaviors, I didn't really know the kid. And I always checked in with them afterwards. So how do you think kiddo did? They're like, well, if you had phrased it this way, for example, they probably would have understood it. So just understanding. So it can give us more information that way. I do a lot of that anyway. That was in my early years where I just found it so valuable when you had people who knew these kids and, you know, or oh, they perseverate on Thomas the train and you mentioned Thomas and now that's all they can think about. So every question was something around Thomas the train or whatever it is. It just gives us a lot of information. So giving them that space to share their story, to share their experiences, making that time throughout the assessment, um, that can go such a long way. And it doesn't have to, I know in our minds, it's like, oh my gosh, it's such a long process just five minutes, just give them an extra five minutes. You know, that's really, it doesn't have to be a long, long time. They're just feeling like that they're, they're part of that. Uh, so we're just moving beyond that standard battery, right? We're engaging the child, we're engaging the family so we can understand that child as best as we can in different contexts, maybe get a better understanding of them, right? Yeah. Um, there's lots of different things that we could be doing. So that kind of brings me to dynamic sort of testing. Um, I do lots of things within the testing itself with kids. So I'm always asking them what their experience was like, you know, but especially if I start to see them shifting or losing focus or getting frustrated, what was easy? What was hard? What did you like about that? What didn't you like? Having them really reflect on their responses. 
um, just the other day I was doing the CBLT and the kiddo I was working with, like the third trial of the verbal learning, they're like, ah, and their hands go up and they're just like, ah. <laughs> and so afterwards, so I just continued on. And then afterwards I'm like, okay, so around the third trial, you went, ah, what was that about? Because is it boring? Is it, you know, their brains getting tired? What is it? And they're like, yeah, like, man, I've already heard it three times. Why do I have to hear it again? That's going to be really helpful. And it, and then there was a little bit of anger. So this is a kiddo. Now I'm wondering, are there autism spectrumy things going on? Because I hate it when people repeat themselves, right? And so it, there was also a little bit of anger there. So it's really interesting. Whereas other kids, you can see it's just, it is, they're just getting tired. I can't hold all that information. So just getting their experiences. Um, if there is a kiddo with ADHD, how is your attention on this? You know, or what kind of tasks was it easier to focus on? What was harder? And how does that compare to in the classroom or at your hockey lesson or whatever it is? So I'm asking, Asking them what their experiences are, are like. So that can give us a lot of information too. So of course, we all know about limit testing and, and I do a lot of dynamic testing and trying out different uh, interventions, dynamic interviews. So when I'm working with kiddos, if writing's really hard and they're getting defeated, maybe they'll have a little bit of interview, you know, what things you know, who's a good writer? Who do you know that's a good writer in your class? What makes them a good writer? What is it that you think that they do? And how do you know that they're a good writer? So looking mm. at all of those kinds of things can be really helpful. Um, and then just doing, you know, if I'm looking at, uh, I might redo a subtest and then I might give some prompting. I might repeat instructions. I might rephrase instructions, you know, does that all help, you know, figure weights is a great example of one where, um, I'll, I'll go through the standardized sort of testing. That's the score I'm going to, uh, report, but then I'll go back and be like, Hey, remember color and size, color and shape matters, dude. Right. And especially when you've got kiddos, like I keep going to ADHD, but, um, maybe they can't pay attention to too many details or they're using the wrong information to solve problems. We know that kids with ADHD lack frameworks. So what if we give them that framework? What if we help them figure out what is it? What's the information I need to figure out to be able to problem solve effectively? And then we can say, once we gave them this framework, or once we gave them that clarification or directed their attention to what it was they needed to pay attention to in the first place, because half the time, that's the problem. They had no problem. And then maybe I will report that, you know, when we gave the framework, look at how much more their score improved. So now that's feeding into our interventions as well and our recommendations, right? So we can start integrating these sort of intervention breaks into the standardized testing that we're doing. So we can see what is actually helpful. Is it just a rephrase? Is that all, all it is that they need? Um, or is it helpful for them to remember? There's two things you need to look at here. Matrix reasoning is another one. It might just be color, but it might be color and direction, right? So there's two pieces of information you need to look at. So looking at what supports or prompts or feedback or questions, you know, the, all of those things then we know for sure that's actually going to help this kiddo. If they're really nervous, right? They're really nervous. You can tell like block design. It's one of the first things that we do. Their hands are trembling, right? Aww. Let's, let's do it. Let's get, get our score. Now we're going to go do some shake off the stress, or we're going to do some reframing or relaxation. And now we're going to come back and test the limits and see what happens. 
So those are going to directly inform some of our recommendations. This is right? great. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully. Just jump in. I know I talk a lot. Um, one thing, one thing too, that I tell kids, um, I always say that we're detectives and, um, I know Loki is super big. Not all kids know Loki, but I often introduce Loki and I talk about our Loki brain likes to cause problems and might like just us to think things are too hard or we, you know, it's too boring or whatever. So we're going to play detectives and we're going to figure out, um, Loki and his henchmen. And then I'll talk about there's different henchmen that gets in the way of our learning. So there could be the attention robbers, there could be brain eaters, there could be the letter mixer upper, or, you know, whatever name you kind of figure out what's going on for the kiddo and you can kind of come up with all these henchmen. So then in the testing, they can be like, oh my gosh, the brain eater just showed up. (laughs) Right. And I do that with my teenagers too. They kind of get a kick out of it. And we'll talk about time robbers when they're studying, you know, oh yeah, TikTok's a huge time robber for for (laughs) me, for example, or whatever. So, but then they can start sharing their experiences and not get frustrated. They're not beating themselves up. They can start actually articulating. That was really hard. My brain started to shut off. Um, And if they can't come up with it in the moment, they can start looking for, and this is, you know, why like having it over more than one session too, okay, through the next week, before I see you again, look for when those henchmen show up, right? And then they can come back and kind of report on it. They don't always, but they can start reflecting on some of their experiences. And those are experiences we might not get to just based on our standardized scores. So I think that that's really important. So just looking at that, uh, I also will go back, hey, on this one, how, how come you answered that? the way you did? Like, how did you figure that one out? And I don't tell them if they're right or wrong. I just want to know how you figured it out. Mm. You know, so it can be really like on picture concepts, it might look like they're really concrete in their thinking, but are they? And oftentimes you can go back and my gifted kids, man, they'll do terrible. They'll have a scaled score of five. But then when you go back and get their reasoning, it's like, wow, that was phenomenal. I would have never thought of those relationships between those things. So it can be really interesting to go back or it really is because they were all yellow or whatever else. Um, Yeah. So I think that that's sometimes I'll, I'll use tests in novel ways too. And so these are some of those intervention breaks that, you know, therapeutic assessment can look really daunting when, you know, you look at the literature and they're three to six months long and it's not the same kind of testing that we do, but we can do little breaks and we can do things in novel ways. So maybe it's now I want you, now that you've done this task, I want you to explain it to me like you're a teacher. And I want you to talk through it to me, right? Or, or like I said, giving them those different frameworks. Um, if there's behavioral concerns, I'll bring parents in and, and maybe we'll do some activities together. This is, again, after all the standardized testing's done, but see how they interact. So are there things in my recommendations that I can give to parents? Hey, I noticed this. Um, you know, I would will have, actually, I had one kiddo who, has accidents still quite a bit during the day. And um, he's older, you know, he's 10. um, And it's quite embarrassing. But some of the research talks about kiddos lack this internal sense, their their awareness of their body when they're not feeling heard. (laughs) And so there's a a correlation between that. And so I had parents come in, um, because that was one of the pieces. I mean, they were wondering about ADHD, they were wondering about um, learning disabilities, but that was a piece too. And so I had them come in, and I had them look at a a picture. 
and they had to problem solve through this picture, what was going on and how they could like what just happened right before. And then what happened as the picture was taken and what can they do to resolve the, the, the information? And the kiddo started giving his story and the dad's like, really, that's what you think is happening here. And the kid's like, yeah. And then the dad was great after that. He, he was for like, okay, let's, so what do you think? Oh yeah, that's a great idea. And, and then he was super, you know, engaged with the kiddo, but that first really, that's what you think. And so then afterwards I asked the kiddo, I'm like, well, and I was praising dad for everything that he did. Right. And then I say, just at the beginning there, I noticed you tried to correct him. He's like, what? I didn't correct him. I'm like, no, but you questioned his interpretation of the picture. Mm -hmm. So then I turned to the kiddo and I'm like, does dad correct you a lot? And he's like, yeah, all the time. And the dad's like, what? And he is. And I, and I've joked with that a a few times because he is mean looking, very mean looking. He's just, you know, he, he's law enforcement. And so he just comes across rough and gruff and Mm -hmm. he's like, I had no idea. Right. And so just that awareness of, wow, I, I really had no idea. And I know it's not therapy that we're doing, but these little pieces can make all the difference in the world just, you know, by shifting their awareness. So, um, so it's just looking at um, how can we bring in the whole family here? What's the bigger picture really at the end of the day? And, and then dad left feeling like, wow, this was so you know, it's just one little thing. It took three minutes from beginning to end, right? It didn't take any extra time, but dad was feeling almost refreshed, rejuvenated. You know, he had a lot of energy after that. Let's take a quick break to hear from our featured partner. The Brief 2 ADHD form is the latest addition to the Brief family of assessment instruments. Using the power of the Brief 2, the gold standard rating form for executive function, Brief2 ADHD form uses Brief2 scores and classification statistics within an evidence-based approach to predict the likelihood of ADHD and to help determine the specific subtype. It can also help evaluators rule in ADHD and rule out other explanations for observed behaviors. Please note that the Brief2 parent and or teacher form scores are required to use this form. The Brief2 ADHD form is available on PARI Connect, PAR's online assessment platform. You can learn more by visiting parinc.com backslash brief2 underscore ADHD. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Diagnosis. So before I had talked about this is a a life-altering event for a lot of parents. So of course, there's contextual um, information that we need to think about. So there's considerations like having a face-to-face conversation, not doing it over the telephone, being in private location. Cause some of the stories were about, we were, you know, in a hallway or in a classroom with just a divider <laughs> and oh, other people on the other side could hear. So just being aware of those little contextual pieces can be really helpful. How we communicate the results though is really important. And there's a few key pieces here. So the first to consider is our way of being. And I talked a little bit about that. So our way of being and professionalism, are we helping parents feel supported? Are they feeling respected and heard and informed? Or are they still feeling confused or angry or stressed out? So making sure we have that compassion, that sensitivity, putting ourselves in their shoes, especially at this point in the assessment, when they're learning about their kiddos' difficulties, even if they already are you know, aware, it's still hard to hear it 
in actuality. So addressing any worries parents might have before jumping into the results, that can really help minimize. Like I said, I I always say, what do you want to hear? What don't you want to (laughs) hear? You know, and and what are you worried about hearing sort of thing? So right away, it's already, it lightens the mood. They kind of laugh at that, but it really is addressing that I get, I get it. I get that this is really anxiety provoking for you. Right. You're seeing them. You're validating it without them having to ask for it. Yeah, exactly. Which mm-hmm. is, which is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just by doing that, they're going to be able to attend better. They're going to be able to understand and accept the results better. Um, we still want to be hopeful. And I know we talked about the strengths-based approach before, and we don't want to go overboard where it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But okay, just give it to me. Right. But we still want to maintain that hopeful side of things. And I always say congratulations when I'm talking about autism or ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if I'm not saying congratulations, your kid has got dyslexia. I'm, I'm, I'm still being hopeful because we do know lots of successful people, right? It's not an end all be all. And I think most parents take these diagnoses as a death sentence, Um, And so it's just the language that we share with them is going to really affect how they perceive what's going on for their, their kiddo. Um, There is, I had to have one feedback via video while I was at my cabin and and usually I make sure my kids are gone, but they happened to come in for a second, right before I was giving a diagnosis to a family. (laughs) And um unfortunately it's just all open so they could kind of hear. And afterwards they were like, they immediately left, but there was a moment they heard the mom crying and they're like, was that mom crying? When you said, I heard you say ADHD. And then the mom was crying. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, why ADHD is awesome. <laughs> Cause <in> my, <laughs> we have a family of ADHDers and I always talk about how it's awesome. And they just couldn't get their head wrapped around it. So how we think of it greatly affects our kids. So obviously I talk about ADHD being a superpower at my house. So my kids see it as that they don't see it as a disability. And so the words we use are really influential. So if we say, even just in the report, I would say, you know, kiddo had tremendous difficulty with something that tremendous is going to be really hard for parents. And it doesn't matter how empathetic we are. So we got to look at the language that we're using. Um, But again, it's that balance because we do need to be direct, especially when we're talking about the areas of challenge and what the implications of all of that kind of stuff is. So, you know, I think that that's, it's finding that balance between. So in a case like that, yeah. Would you just drop the tremendous and say something like this task was really hard or so-and-so struggled? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've u- I've stopped using those big words anymore. Yeah. Even though, even though it might be true, I still use though because parents still laugh at this. Um, with digit span, for example, mm-hmm. I'll use his performance plummeted. <laughs> so yeah. digit span is a good example um, where I still might use a word like that. So great when it's just they take it in and simply have to repeat it back. They can do that. Johnny, go do X, Y, and Z. But as soon as they have to do anything with that information, they turn to go do X, Y, and Z, it's gone. They can't remember it. Um, then parents, you know, they see that and they can see it in their everyday life. And then it's just a moment of lightness. So I'll say, you know, it's how I say the word plummeted. Um, 
And then we can have a little laugh of that. So it's just understanding the family and things like that. But, but yeah, I do. I just say that was hard. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. So, um, if we do one, one of the things that I often do too, is I ask them about their worries, of course, but I get them to start answering their assessment questions themselves. Hmm. because then they're getting out of their worried brain waiting in that anticipation of what I'm going to say. And we're getting into their thinking brains. So now we're going to get them engaged so they can answer those questions. Um, or, you know, even if I'm going to look at something like reading, I'm giving the feedback on reading. I'll tell them, say, Hey, I looked at these three areas of reading and I'll explain each three area. And then I'll ask them, how do you think they did? What do you think out of those three areas was easier or harder for them? And then I can really gauge the conversation based on how they respond. And predictions are really important. And that's why I do this. We know that making predictions, and this is you know entrenched in the research, it keeps us engaged because we want to know if our prediction's right. Our sure. brain is motivated when we're right because then we're like, yes, I got it, nailed it, right? And then we can praise the parents. Wow, you've got really good intuition. You really know your child. So now we're empowering parents because, yeah, you got it. You're bang on. But then if they're wrong, we want to learn more about why we're wrong. Oh, I totally thought it was decoding that was wrong, right? Like, so now I want to hear more because if it's not decoding, let me know. Like, now I'm engaged and they're not worried about a label that we might give them. So that's one way I kind of get around that. Um, and especially when it's an important topic like this, mm-hmm. we're just kind of engaging their brain. So I think that, that that's really important because at the end of the day, the most important goal for our feedback meeting is to empower parents. That's what we want to do. That's our goal. So yes, understanding their kids is important, know exactly what's going on and everything else. So to really empower parents, the information they receive, um, everything that we've talked about in all of our training and every professional training development, we always know that all the information has to be memorable, has to be understandable and useful, of course. So we can arrange our sessions in response to parents' questions. We're getting them answering those questions. Hopefully they're already involved throughout the process so they can actually answer those questions pretty bang on because we've already talked about it. Now we're just digging deeper and now we can talk about it yeah, you are right. They really do have these reading difficulties. So let's talk about the implications of that. So the feedback meeting isn't really a feedback meeting so much as we're going to dig deeper here and we're going to talk about, we can spend more time on what we're going to do about it. So I think that that, that can be really helpful. Um, so we're just using the results section should really just be about when we're doing the feedback meeting should really just be about how do we initiate this dialogue about mm-hmm. how the scores actually, how it contributes to their everyday situations. So now we're doing this in-depth sort of co-investigation of what's happening. It's not me saying he was 50th percentile on this and he was 25th percentile on this, but only 5th percentile on this. And therefore, you know, he's got dyslexia. It's not about that. It's together. We're looking at, this is what I noticed was hard. What do you notice at home? How does that fit with what you know? Does that fit with your hypotheses, right? So then they can start reflecting on, what we have to say, does that fit with what's going on for their child? Because that's going to be really important. 
Now, I know you asked before about the whole average, you know, do parents really want to know that or not? Um, we, we can educate parents about what normal sort of expectations are for our kiddos development and where mm-hmm. their kiddo fits, but they, they really, they really don't care about that normative data at the end of the day. And it's not just anecdotal. We do see that in the research. They want to see how it connects with everyday life. That's what they want to see. Right. Like how do these numbers explain what I'm seeing with my kid? Yeah. Yeah. So how does it fit their child? And we also want to, you know, respect their expertise too. And that's why we're reflecting on the results and how they can connect it to real life examples, because then that's giving us, oh, you're really struggling here. I'm going to make sure my recommendations talk around that area that you're struggling with. So that's helpful. I mean, I had a little girl. Oh, so heartbreaking. She's just beautiful, blonde hair, blue eyes. Her FSIQ is in the fifties and, you mm. know, parents don't see that. And, you know, I had to talk about compared to other kids, her age, where that fits into, but what was most helpful was talking about future and the vulnerability. And so one of the examples that I often give kid um, parents is I had worked with a teenager talking to him. I would have had no idea had I not done the cognitive testing. I really wouldn't have had any idea how low he was cognitively because he seemed like a normal teenager, but, but his decisions, he had gone to a party the weekend before I saw him and he got picked up for DUI. And he's like, Caroline, I don't get it because after every beer, I drank a glass of water. So he thought he was, uh, you know, neutralizing the alcohol with every glass of water. And so I shared that example and they're like, oh my gosh, Caroline, our little girl, she knows she's not supposed to go past the yellow house. But one day dad went for a walk with the dog and was like six blocks away and saw her riding her bike with a little boy who's like, just follow me. And they're like that that vulnerability, that vulnerability piece. Right. And, and that's where the pieces all came together because even teachers were questioning, no, no, it can't be a cognitive disability. She's so sweet. And and that's the problem. She's so sweet and she's so beautiful and she's so funny and so engaging, but you've got a kiddo who's nine, 10 years old, who will come and sit in your lap without having ever met you before and giving you hugs and saying she loves you. And like, I think that vulnerability piece for them that connects to a real life example of, oh my gosh, they didn't right. think of it as a big deal, but they started to realize the implications oh, of the future. Sure. Yeah. So that's really what, what we need to do is how it applies to their kiddo in their family situation, their everyday routines. And then we can look at those recommendations. So a huge recommendation for me really was about your circle of intimacy. We're going to focus on that circle of intimacy. That's our focus. I don't care about reading. (laughs) I know you do, but, 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 but then parents really in the bigger picture, they didn't care so much about she's still reading, you know, not even kindergarten level books. It's, it's man, what are the bigger implications? So we're giving them very specific information about what's going on. Positive swell, right? How is your kiddo thriving? Where do they do at their best? And then going into some of those difficulties and can we use some of their interests and strengths in these other areas? That's going to be important. 
really clear, relevant information about those difficulties. And that was just a great example of how they understood the diagnosis of the, the, the cognitive disability, right? And, and the day-to-day functioning and what the future could look like for them. That's a huge piece for, for parents. You know, sure. are they going to outgrow it? Will they always need medications? You know, will, will they be able to go to college? We don't always know those, you know, what that's going to look like for this little girl. Well, I had another teenage girl, similar profile, and she's going to college near us. You know, she's, it was like a wilderness adventure kind of thing. So no, she's not going to med school. So I, I give examples. We really don't know. You know, or when I did early intervention with kiddos with autism, we really don't know what they're going to look like as adults. We're going to try working on, you know, we do know we need to start working on daily life skills a lot earlier for them. They're going to be doing things at a much younger age because they need that repetition or whatever. So, but that's a big stressor for parents too, is they just want to know about the future. I know. I know. Those are the hardest questions to answer sometimes. Yeah. And hard to disappoint parents or at least leave them hanging as, as my experience. Yeah. I like uh, what I, you know, I interviewed Karen Postal a long time ago around her feedback that sticks book. And I think she was the one that said she'll do kind of a best case and a worst case scenario and then say, right. you know, it's probably going to end up somewhere in the middle, but it'll at least give you the extreme so you can start to wrap your mind around this. Right. And I hate to be the Debbie Downer because we actually have, I know a woman um, who was the chair of her department with a PhD um, who was identified back then it was mental retardation and she was in special ed classes, pretty much all of elementary. And she was reassessed in middle school and they were like, no, actually she's quite bright. Oh my gosh so scary. And so there are those stories too, where it's just like, what happened? I actually see that all the time where you've got a kiddo with severe ADHD and ESL and and they're misdiagnosed. But um, I mean, I didn't tell those stories about this little girl because it it really was, you know, a different kind of story, but you know, there's always those outliers too. Scary. So always thinking, what am I telling them about their kiddo? What is their kiddo going through? What are their kiddo's experiences? What are your experiences as the parent? Why, why might your child be behaving this way, right? They aren't mm-hmm. rats. They aren't lazy. What's going on for them? I actually have, I do a few exercises and I like to show this picture. I don't know. Do you want me to show it to you and I can send you the link or should I just talk about it? Yeah, let's see. Let's, I'd love to see it. Let's, uh. Do that. Okay. I'll see if I can share screen. Okay. Got it. So what's in this picture? Have you seen this picture before? No. Okay. Oh, I guess I can. Okay. You've never said what's in this picture. Okay. This is interesting. I'm just going to describe for the listeners. It's a black and white picture with what looks like, I don't know, ink or sand just sort of on it, strewn around it. I don't see anything discernible here. Maybe it's a map. I don't know. Like it looks like sort of a map of parts of Europe or something. Come on, uh, Jeremy, you're not trying hard enough. Come on. <laughs> I don't like being put on the spot. Uh, I, yeah, I really don't know. This is, that's the best I can do. Maybe well, it's maybe- a microscopic 
view of something. I don't know. So maybe you're not lazy. Maybe you're not motivated enough. I'll give you a hundred bucks. Tell me what's in this picture. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, it's a rabbit leaping over a dandelion. Okay. Okay. Now you're just being a class clown. Go to the principal's office, right? Like there's, <laughs> yeah. So um, we might here, I'll show you. It's, it's, um, where's my draw? Okay. I can't find my draw, but it's a, it's a cow. And I can send this so that people can actually see what it is, but here's the top of its head. Here's one ear. Here's its face. Yeah. Yeah. There's its eyes. And then the body is out over here. Normally I would draw it out for you. Sure. So I will often give that to parents um, and, and do that. And I'll actually be really mean, like, come on, come on. You're not like, come on, <laughs> you know, look at it. You're not trying. Right, Why right. are you being so defiant? <laughs> But the problem is with that, they can't perceive it. The kiddos can't perceive it, right? Um, they can sure. see it, right? And we can motivate them, but they can't bring meaning to it. Just like you couldn't bring meaning to it. Kids need a teacher. We need to give them direct instruction. We can't just leave them on their own to themselves to figure it out, you know? And then they're going to feel defeated. Why can't I do this? I'm the only one who can't get it. Hmm. So I, in the feedback meetings, depending on what's going on for kiddos, I'll give them different exercises or I'll give them pictures like that. I have another one where it, from a distance, it looks like a skull and mm -hmm. I'll have parents to give me a title of this story. And there's something about a skull and then I'll yell at them. How dare you, you know, talk about a skull. I'm trying to show you this beautiful Victorian picture. And then you see it up close and it's a woman in a mirror putting on her makeup Right. And so it's just helping parents understand what's going on for their kiddo and what their kiddo's experiencing. So if there are pushback, you know, every time they're doing writing or there's this defiance or anything, how can I, as a parent, respond in helpful ways? And how can I create the right environment? And so I do experiential things like that with them right in the feedback session um, as it pertains to their kiddos or with, you know, I'll give them a mirror and I'll have them. So all they can see, they have to use their non-dominant hand looking at the mirror, trying to write, hmm. you know, their name or something like that. And like, look at how effortful that was for you. Now you've got a kiddo with severe fine motor difficulties who has to actually think about just how to form their letter, forget about spelling, forget about everything else. So it's just that aha where parents are like, wow, I didn't even realize. I just always saw the fight, the fight, the fight whenever we were kind of doing this. So doing those experiential things can be really valuable for parents and, and, and checking in. And sometimes I won't even explain it. I'll be like, why do you think I showed you that picture? Sometimes they'll think about it. I mean, some things are very obvious and then they can start mm -hmm. reflecting back, right. On, on what that means for their own kiddo. So it's really going beyond just sharing the results. It's sharing it in a way that makes sense that they're going to hear it. They're going to take it in and take it to heart. And we're really inviting them to be, you know, co-meaning makers of this information mm -hmm. and, and what that means for them and for their kiddo too. So it, it's looking at now they understand their child's needs and how much of a struggle it, it is. They're going to feel empowered. And that's our goal, right? To make sure that they're feeling empowered. So what it is that they, they, they can do to just respond differently, that can be really um, helpful. Advocating for parents, that's another big one where they're feeling at the end, I don't know what to do. 
How can we advocate for them? How can we connect them to appropriate resources? Um, Ultimately, we want to coach them how to be good advocates themselves, right? How you can go advocate to the school and with the teacher, with these learning supports or whatever it else. So looking at what do we need to do to help parents be successful? And if we did that little bit of qualitative information gathering at the beginning, we know, have a bit of an understanding you know, of what their dashboard for success looks like. Maybe they do need a little bit more handholding and we will help them through that process. Or it's a, here you go, here's the checklist and off you go, right? Or what could be getting in the way of their success? That's kind of what we need to do. Um, a few more things. Are you still good to hear a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. I think okay, we're good. Okay, I'm okay. particularly curious about this process after the feedback session and how how we support parents and not just leave them hanging. You mentioned that a while back and I wonder, yeah, if we could chat about that, if that fits in your, yeah, for sure. So uh, again, they're not coming for labels. So that's a good kind of segue. I I like to think of the assessment as a comma. It's not a period, right? It's, it's the beginning Mm -hmm. of a new journey for them. The reason they came was for a roadmap. So we are creating that game plan and the next step. So a huge piece of it really is in that feedback meeting. Well, ideally you want a second feedback meeting and that's where we're going to deep dive. And together we're going to go through some of those recommendations and is this feasible? We are checking in with them, right? And so helping them along the way and where do I come in? And do you want me to talk to the school and give that feedback or the IPP? So we are kind of doing that together. Um, I think that that's really important in terms of how do we translate this into something that's going to be helpful for you and, and just going through what's, you know, not important necessarily, or what do you need to learn? Ideally, I would love for you to be doing this, but what is it that you need to do to learn or to support this? So it's kind of a second feedback meeting where we can really go into making sure that those interventions and the next steps are, they make sense and that they're doable, right? And the parents are actually feeling motivated and confident that they could do it because yeah. there is some grief here and we don't want them to feel, you know, stuck in that grief and then feeling that they're abandoned because that's not going to be helpful. So having that follow-up feedback session is really helpful. That's where we dig deep into the recommendations and maybe, you know, clarify any questions they had because now they've had a chance to read the report. I also ask, you know, what did you learn from this assessment about your kiddo? So looking at all of those things can be really important. But then after that, it's looking at every family is going to be, you know, a little bit different, not to say that we have to have 50 million different pathways for every family, but you're creating a library of resources. So you got a diagnosis of mixed mixed dyslexia. Here's a packet. Start here. It talks about what mixed dyslexia is. It talks about some of the things that you could be doing. These are some local resources national resources or whatever it is that you could start looking at. So we kind of curate a a lot of those. So just a little resource package. Um, Maybe there's other people. So maybe there's, this is the kind of intervention program that's going to be really helpful for your kiddo. Here are people in the city who do that kind of intervention, for example. So if we can Mm. give them really easy next steps, that's, you know, so valuable. Um, Maybe you have a clinician in your office, you know, who could then take on some of the, you know, maybe there's anxiety and you've got someone who does counseling around anxiety. Maybe you have an executive functioning coach that kiddo can develop some strategies around that. 
So maybe there's things in-house that you can do, but if not, where are things that they can do or go to and and what resources they can have afterwards? That's huge. Um, Really, at the end of the day, that's about what we can do. We do need to be careful about dual roles, you know, being assessor and then interventionist and all of those kinds of things, but it's really laying out those next steps. And I often tell parents too, I think even just the reassurance of knowing. So, you know, in a few weeks, once you've had it, let me know if you've got questions, but you know what? You can let me know next year when you're creating the IPP or next year when your kid has got an exam, you're like, ah, Caroline, you know, we didn't even think about this but we have no study strategies help. You can call me and let me know because these recommendations are based on this assessment right now, but Mm -hmm. next year or in two years, well, you know, they might be needing a reassessment anyway, you can call me back and we can look at those strategies. And, And I think that alone can make all the difference in the world for parents because they're not feeling like they're, they're abandoned, that they can call you back. Yes. Yes. That's so crucial. Yeah. I always try to impress that upon parents. Like I am available anytime. Could be six years from now. Could be six months from now. Could be six days from now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Our relationship is one of the strongest variables to their experiences of the assessment process. And, and, And it's directly correlated with their involvement with their kiddos intervention in the future. So whether they take up treatment or intervention or tutoring or whatever else, our relationship directly affects that. So when we have a strong relationship, that's really everything that I've talked about is about building that relationship. Yes, it's about getting more detailed information, which is also helpful and, you know, all of those kinds of things, but we're promoting that relationship. And parents will say, and, and this is in the research, they'll, they'll say, just talk to me like a person, talk to me like a friend who's, who's genuinely interested. You really want to know about me. You really want to know about my kiddo. You're not just some stuffy clinician. And so that approachability, that openness, easygoingness, that's all really important. And even little things like eye contact, are you stuck on your clipboard madly taking notes or are you actually (laughs) looking and engaging with families? Because that is a piece they pick up on that. Sure. Sure. That's huge. Yeah. So, so just looking at those little things that what can we do to enhance their experiences and really validate where they're going um, Mm. with everything. And, and of course, you know, looking at their expertise, because that's going to help with the empowerment piece. That's going to help build the relationship. So if we can engage in collaborative problem solving, you know, just like we would do with a kiddo, if we've got behavioral problems or whatever, let's come up with as many ideas for difficulties. So what are some of the things that you're really struggling with? And so those are some of those questions at the beginning that I ask. remember, how will you know this assessment was helpful? Oh, well, I will know because of these situations. Okay. Let's go back to those situations. What are things you've tried? Haven't tried. Let's, you know, look at all of our ideas. Let's do some problem solving here. Let's make a plan. And then go put it into practice, evaluate it, come back and let's let me know how it goes. And then we can kind of update from there. So now we're teaching them skills that we're, we want them to do anyway. So it's just looking at that piece. Um, so right from the start, there's that collaboration. And from all of the research that I had done, I, I did develop this parent input form. I, I, it's tricky because it's I know it's another form. It's one more thing for us to do, but it just helps gather some of that information that 
we know is most important to parents. And I've got a link for that for you. Um, if people want to look at it and you can modify it, however you think, but those are kind of the most important pieces that are identified in the research that are important for parents. Um, but you know, it's just looking at all of these little pieces. The only other thing I know we talk about the reports a lot, Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't necessarily need to go too much into this, but the recommendations for the report, um, yeah. it's still important to bring up again, because I think us hearing the same messages over and over is really helpful. So, of course, the readability is important, short sentences, no jargon, simplifying vocabulary, only, you know, really short paragraphs, plain language, all of those things can be really important. I break it down to concrete examples of everyday functioning. I don't say visual, spatial processing, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, your kid, like this skill is going to be important for your kid to pack a suitcase or to read a map, (laughs) right? Like that's, that's yeah, that's how I break it down in the report. That's how I talk about it. Uh, I really don't like bullets. I do see reports with bullets, but if you do have parents who, you know, maybe their language or their literacy skills are are, are kind of limited, then a simplified bulleted summary, you know, that can be helpful. I do uh-huh. pictorials, especially if I think parents might be low cognitive. I actually use pictures and, mm-hmm. and kind of talk about things in that way. Um Definitely, you know, next steps, we kind of already talked about that and specific behavior management strategies, um, where you need follow-up support, what kind of support, um, funding. Here in Canada, we've got disability tax credits. So, Mm. you know, do we think that they, I don't know what you guys have, but do we think that they can qualify? You know what? We can do those forms for you. This is what that looks like. So we're really kind of giving those next steps. The only last thing I really wanted to talk about was thinking about our values and our purpose. And I know that that's a big piece in the counseling psychology world. We're always thinking about our values, but it really applies here too, even in our report writing. So my value and mission in the work that I do is to inspire and empower families. And really at the end of the day, it's to promote the resilience and growth of kiddos. That's also therefore the purpose of my reports. And so if I always remember that's my mission in all of the work, even my reports, how do I empower families? So it has to make sense. It has to help them understand their kiddo. They have to know exactly what they need to do next. They need to be hopeful and inspired. It's one thing to know what's going on for my kiddo and what I need to do next. But if there's no hope for the future, that's going to be pretty defeating for them as well. So when we look at the report, how do you do whatever is important for you and, and, how you want to be most helpful is going to be really important because this really should be a manual for their kiddo. We get a manual for everything in life and the most complex things in our life are our kids and we have nothing. Um, Even dogs. I've got a couple of dogs. You've probably heard them shift here, Um, but (laughs) they kind of have manuals too, right? Like it's really easy for, I mean, it's not quite the same, but I've got, there's trainers and there's black and white steps. This is what you need to do if you've got this problem. Kids are a whole other game. So this is kind of that beginning manual and we we don't want it to go in the garbage or the shredder. Yes, such a good point. I like what you just said about living the values of your practice through the report and the other parts of the assessment process. I talk about values a lot in the context of business and employees and things like that, but it is equally applicable on the clinical side. You know, you've, you've got to bring those values to life in the work that you do as well. 
Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's just bringing it down. I often talk of myself as this big blonde baboon because, you know, I was just on a panel with a bunch of other professionals for experts around COVID the other day. And I was the one who's like, bah, 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 bah. you know, but I, I, I use layman language. I don't talk about orthographic processing and, you know, all of these different things that nobody can make sense of. I break it down for people to make sense of it, you know, and, and that for me is what's really important, but Man, that was a lot of information. Like I said, I think it's just focusing on one thing. What's one thing that stands out for you that you could start doing in your practice? And, and then you can build from there once that's kind of entrenched. But starting small and just kind of building from there. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I mean, you shared so much information with us and so many like actionable ideas that, which I love. I think that, I think we all want to take the, that sort of information away from a podcast like this, but there is a lot. So uh, yeah, I think ending on this note of, Hey, this is a lot of info and just pick one thing that you can, that you can work on this week or this month. And the rest of the list will, will be there. You don't have to do everything, but yeah, think about one thing that you could do to, to change things for the better. Yeah. And that's and a great I, place to start. And I, I shared with you a link to uh, just basic parent recommendations too, just so people are like, what was that all again? I can't remember it all. Um, there's a few recommendations there that you can get started with. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. And all the resources you know, will be put in the show notes, everything we mentioned, everything that you sent me. Um, gosh, I took so many notes during this episode and I've you know, got the wheels turning about ways that we can do things differently here. So personally and professionally, I'm so grateful for the time that you've spent with me here. Good. I'm glad it was helpful. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I hope our paths cross again sometime soon. And in the meantime, take care and do good work. Thanks. You too. Take care. Thank you as always for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope that you were taking notes. I know I was. And I had to review those here as I was putting the podcast together so that I can implement some of those things in our own practice. Just so many good pieces of information here. Like I said at the beginning, if you are attracted to the idea of an accountability group where you can work with other psychologists to grow your testing practice, I would love to chat with you and see if it would be a good fit. I've got space in the intermediate group and the beginner group. And you can get more information and schedule a pre-group call at thetestingpsychologist.com slash consulting. Okay, y'all, that is it for today. Uh, I will be back on Thursday with a business episode and the following Monday with a clinical episode. I believe I've got Dr. Mike Posner coming on to talk about attention and his research in that area and just his perspectives from being in the field for so long. He is one of the most prolific researchers in our field. And it's a good conversation. So stay tuned and don't miss it. All right. Y'all take care. The information contained in this podcast and on the Testing Psychologist website are intended for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing 
in this podcast or on the website is intended to be a substitute for professional psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please note that no doctor-patient relationship is formed here, and similarly, no supervisory or consultative relationship is formed between the host or guests of this podcast and listeners of this podcast. If you need the qualified advice of any mental health practitioner or medical provider, please seek one in your area. Similarly, if you need supervision on clinical matters, please find a supervisor with an expertise that fits your needs.